0: Good morning. It is good to be with you this morning. Did anyone else enjoy just love yesterday and the weather? Oh my goodness, the temperature. Ah, oh, it is perfect. It is perfect. I'm so excited. I did see that There's like a tropical storm headed toward the the south, so we'll see what what turns up with that. Um, Just wanted to bring a couple things to your attention real quick. Uh, One went out this week via email, and it it should be in your bulletin today as well. But uh, in a couple Sundays, two Sundays, on the 8th of September, we're going to have a brief meeting after second service um, for all of our our children's ministry volunteers. And so um, if that's you, we would love for you to be a part of that meeting with us. It's going to probably involve several things. One big one is just uh, scheduling for the rest of this calendar year up to Christmas, um, because I know it's crazy, but Christmas is almost here in our scheduling world. And so uh, we, we hope to um, just have a lot of great things for you in that meeting, but um, it's on the 8th right after second service. So if you currently volunteer or would like to, and you just haven't ever got plugged in, please, please, please come on the 8th um, to 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 that meeting. Um, we're we're excited about that, what's, what's coming up. Um, community groups are going to start up very, 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 very soon here, just in just a few weeks. And uh, as it turns out, I mentioned it last week, but we really do um, need about at least one more um, couple to lead a group. And so if that's you, uh, let me know. We're actually doing some training today after school. I'll, I'll feed you lunch, or after school. Ha, <laughs> back to school again. Um, yeah, it's my world. Um, I'll feed you. Uh, We got good food coming. So um, stay after and learn more about what it's about. We're excited about it. I'm excited about the new group. That Chris and I are going to be leading starting on the other side of the county. And so um, be should be a lot of fun. The last thing I want to let you know about is this. Um, We're partnering with Forest Park. You know that. Um, They contacted this week and said, hey, we want to do a breakfast. They did last year was the first year, a breakfast for all the first responders in the community. And so they have that at the school. Problem is it's very, very short notice. It's actually next week, I believe, during the week. Um, at some point in time. And so um, they asked us if we could help provide some food for that first responder's breakfast. And I know, especially in this service, we have some breakfast cookers. And so I believe Cheryl Williams was going to have a sign up sheet out there today. Um, if it's not, just let me know if you're willing to, uh, to bring in some food or even better, actually go out to the school and, and help support some of those first responders on that date. I believe it's the 6th or 7th. It's one of those two dates. It's it's the Friday, okay, um, of next week. So anyway, if that's you and you love breakfast, uh, this would be a perfect time to make a breakfast casserole or something and, and come in. She's gonna have the list of the, the items um, that they need for that event. So I thought it was an exciting time. Now we're not just partnering with the school, we're partnering with the school, reaching out to the community another way. And that is an incredible. Incredible thing. So today, back to school. We just started school a couple weeks ago. Actually, my students started almost a month ago at this point in time, but that's okay. Um, I don't know. How many of you remember any elements about going back to school as a kid? Does anyone remember anything? Be honest. Do you remember some things? Okay, good or bad, um, depending. Maybe some years were really, really crystal clear for you. How far back can you remember like, what grade level can you remember back to? I know for me, that's been a judge as a parent. Like, I can remember back to a certain age in my kids' school, so I can identify with them in some grades that they're in. I can remember third grade when I broke my arm. I can remember first grade when I moved after Easter. I can remember kindergarten, not at all, except I got in trouble because I couldn't tie my shoes right. And so I had to stay in recess because I, taught, I tied my shoes like my dad, and he'd never learned how to tie his shoes right. And so I did the same, and then I got in trouble. True story. Um, You can ask my mom. Mom's right here. She knows this. This is a true story. Um, Now that I think about it, mom's sitting right there. Uh, So anyway, I don't know. What, what, what What was it for you? What was your story? What was the thing that you look forward to or not? Were you excited to see those friends? Even as a kid, I had neighbors, but I didn't see the rest of my school friends all summer, ever. It seems like today everybody sees everybody all the time. I don't know what's changed in that world. I'm not exactly sure. Do you remember the year? When you found out whose class you were in and you dreaded going back to school because you did not want that teacher? Did anyone ever have that experience? Be honest, yeah. It said yes, absolutely. How about, did you ever pray that when you got to school that day, your teacher did not assign you the seat next to that person? You, do you remember that? Or having that locker next to that person again the next year in high school? Did you ever have those experiences? Or flip it, maybe you prayed that your teacher would assign you the seat next to that person. You know the one that happened too right these are these are all things that happened back in the day when we went to school I can remember going back to school I never looked forward to it never looked forward to it as a student can I be really honest I never looked forward to it as a teacher you think students don't want to go back to school talk to any teacher in the room they'll they'll tell you what it's really like to have to go back to school I just enjoyed summer too much I really never saw a need for that to end and for us to go back Um, also for some reason I don't know why I was always nervous going back to school. I don't have any idea. I wasn't a bad student. That wasn't, I don't have any clue, but I was always nervous about going back to school. And I truly don't know what the motivation was. Maybe like everyone else, I just cared a little too much about what everybody else thought. For us, going back to school, seventh grade was probably going to be the worst year because we went to a junior, senior high school, right? Some of you did and do as well. And so that meant in seventh grade, You know, there's only two hallways in our school. In seventh grade, down at the other end of the hallway, who's there? The seniors. Yes, seniors and seventh graders in the same hallway. That was pretty weird, to say the least. And there were some really weird things that happened as a result of that too. But as a sixth grader, you heard all the horror stories of what the high schoolers would do to said middle schoolers. So you had every reason to be afraid of going back to school and then there was the seven different classes seven different teachers all over this building only five minutes to get stuff and get to where you needed to be and that included changing clothes for PE right you all remember that too yeah all the things that we had to worry about and then that locker you know the one the old lockers that sometimes and sometimes you know the ones it all had those issues and then I graduated right and so life's going to get better right? Go to college. Everything's going to be just wonderful in college. Now, full disclosure, in case you haven't heard this, I'll mention it from time to time. When I first became a pastor, I learned very quickly, very, very quickly, that most of the stories that pastors tell from this position are not true. Um, They're either completely embellished, total lies, or there's somebody else's story that they've just inserted their name in. Pastors like to call that artistic license, okay? I'm, you think I'm making this up. I dare you. Listen to any big name preacher and you can find that story online somewhere else and someone else saying it. I'm just gonna tell you that. I vowed not to let that happen. And so the stories I tell you will be as true as they possibly can be. So they might not be as exciting as the fake stories that everybody else tells, but they're real. So there you go. So my first day of college, this is no joke. My first day of college, 8 a.m. calculus, my freshman year. Yes, 8 a.m. calculus. There are so many things wrong with 8 a.m. calculus, I'm not even going to go into them, but they're there, all right? So here's my story. 7.45, I roll into the Science and Math building, Science and Math Center, the Julian Science and Math Center to be exact, to find my class. Now, I did not go to a big college, only a couple thousand people, not that big a campus. You could wake up five minutes before class, get there on time, all right? That's, that's the size. But I got into this building. I do not remember the room number. I just remember it started with a one. It was 100 something, which of course indicates it's where? The first floor, exactly. So I wander around the first floor and around the first floor, and there's no 100 in anything. This doesn't exist. So I'm like, well, I'll go to the second floor. Walk around the second floor. No, 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 of course not. It's all 200-something. All right, just for fun, I go up to the third floor. Now, in case you don't notice, um, at 8 a.m. in the Science and Math Center, probably not true at Rose-Hulman, but every other school in the world, there is no one in the Science and Math Center at 8 a.m. in the morning, as there should not be all right? That is absolutely truth. It should not be people in that building at that time. And there was no one to ask, no, no one to get help from. So I wandered around and it's eight o'clock. I'm starting to sweat. I'm nervous anyway. It's the first day of school. I don't know a soul in my class. I hate calculus. I had, it in, I had it in high school. It was hard. I did not want to take it. And I can't even find my stupid class. This is cruel. This is college. It's not supposed to be this way, right? So I finally found the stairs to the dungeon. I, I mean, the basement. <laughs> And I go down the stairs, and I, this is completely true. I go down the stairs, and the only lights on in the hallways are the security lights. It's dark. There are literal desks piled in the hallways. I'm, and at the end of the hallway is this familiar glow of a fluorescent light, coming from a room. So I walk down there, and sure enough. There's the calculus professor and the other students. And I'm like, are you serious? A crowded little room in the dark dungeon of a basement for 8 a.m. calculus your freshman year. Yes, that really happened. I don't know why. Um, day two, he found us a really nice lecture room on the second floor. And we met up there and it was still a horrible class. But we, we, we had, to, had to go through it. Um, I don't know what was going on. That was just cruel for all of us in that class. Now, I know... Many parents look forward to that first day of school, right? As short as summer is, sometimes it's just a little too long. We really want those kids to go back to school. And I I understand that. You love your kids, but it's just time. They just need to go back. I get that. Um, But can I be really honest with you and share something with you? Um, For the last 14 years and counting, my wife and I have never, ever, ever, ever said that. Nor will we. Um, Many of you know the reality of life and know that you will only have your kids with you in house for so long. And so there's nothing wrong with wanting them to go back to school for them to enjoy school. That's not it. It's just cherish every moment that you get with them because they will not always be there. And you're never too young to start considering that. That's not just wisdom, (laughs) ask anyone in the room. There's a lot of older parents in here that remember those days and probably at one point in time wish their kids would go back to school and now look back and say, you know, I really wish they were home. And so just, just consider that in life. Back to school. So do we view life? Do we view our lives in a similar way as going back to school? What does each new day bring for us? Are you excited for the new day, are you excited for today, or did you dread it? Are you excited for what might happen, or might not happen tomorrow? Are you anxious about what lies ahead? Do you see what's in the news and in society, and maybe fear what could be next? How does all of this relate to our faith in Christ? Does, does what's going on for those of us that are believers? Is what's going on around us? Does it push us or bring us closer to Christ, or does it cause some doubt? in our minds. If you're not yet a believer, are the events of this world right now moving you closer to Jesus or farther apart? I can tell you that on at least some level, they're moving you closer. And I know this because for some reason, God has you listening today and he's bringing you closer. He's bringing you into his presence. You're not an accident. It's not didn't happen by chance for you to do that. Over these next three weeks, we're going to talk about three things that we all identified with going back to school. Every single one of us have done it. And then we're going to look at how that relates to our faith and our direct faith journey with with God in this life that we live. Each week, we're going to take a different example from Scripture, an individual that went through that idea and see how God helped them through it. So today, the first day of school, honestly, was anyone full of fear for that first day of school? Or maybe it was just excitement. Were you anxious? about what people would think of you, whether or not you would have her pass that class that you finally had to take, especially in high school to graduate. Maybe you were afraid of how others might treat you. Maybe you had to change schools. Did anyone ever have to do that? Have to go to a new school even during the school year and like meet a whole new crowd of people and try to function and ah, it's a nightmare. Maybe you were excited. You're one of those kids. You loved school. You just couldn't wait to go back. You got new pencils and erasers, and that was like the best thing in the world. And you just couldn't go couldn't go back soon enough. Maybe you were scared of school. Did you know? Of course, there is an actual fear of schools, right? A phobia. Did you know this? Uh, honestly, did phobia? It's a real word. Yeah, it is. Um, the fear of going to school. Yes, I had to practice it multiple times to figure out how to pronounce it. Um, students, if you can figure out how to pronounce it, maybe you can convince your parents that you have it. Good luck. I'm not sure. With all that's going on in the world today, let's be honest, who isn't a little scared of what could potentially happen at school? And so what I wanted to do today was kind of here to start this message before we dive into God's word is I want to take a moment and I want to pray for all of our students for all of our teachers, for all of our administrators, for all of our bus drivers, for all of our faculty, for anybody that has anything to do with the schools. I wanted us to pray for them. So what I'm going to ask is if you're a student or a teacher or you work at a school in any capacity, in any way, even if you're a volunteer aide, it doesn't matter. We want you to stay seated. And want everybody else to get up, gather around those folks, and we're just going to pray over those people in the school year upcoming. So go ahead. If you're a student or a teacher or anything like that, stay right where you are. Um, even like to so say, you're, you're, uh, you're the lead mother and a, a, a classroom mom. That's fine. That's perfect. Just stay where you are and everybody else. Just kind of gather around those folks. Let's pray for them real quick here. <clears throat> I know we got lots of them in here. That's awesome. Look at how many folks we have connected with the schools. Isn't that awesome? Those folks love Jesus and they're teaching kids the same. Father God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for those that have gathered here In your name, Father, those that that have chosen, that are either in school as students or those that serve you by going and serving in the schools by teaching. Father, we just pray for your hand of protection over these individuals, over all the schools in our community, in our state, Father, in our nation, even across the world. But Father, these are our people and we selfishly want to pray that you guide them, direct them, protect them from the evil that exists all around us. Father, pray that their years will be full of successes, both professionally and educationally. Father, as they see students get it, maybe for the first time, as they encourage students, as they love students that, Father, a lot of other kids don't love. Father, we know the issues of bullying that exist. We know the harm that can be done to those students. And we pray that the adults in this room that work in schools can identify those kids and show them an extra amount of your love and your grace and your mercy when the world is just harsh. Father, this is a serious, serious prayer, and we just pray that you use these people, including the students, to be your light in a very dark world. Father, we love you, and we thank you for this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you all. Now, we know that the reality is there are people that are crippled by fear in life, and Dr. Evans addressed that briefly a few weeks ago with us when... He was here. We know that those people that have those intense fears need the same love of Jesus, need the same encouragement that everyone else does. And they might need an additional measure of some type of professional help or even medication. We understand that. But didn't we think adults, didn't we think as teens that some of the fears and things that we dealt with in life would go away when we became adults? I, I did, I really did. But I've learned that maybe, maybe they just kind of moved to a new area of life. Have any of you ever started a new job where you didn't know anybody? Wasn't it just like going back to school? It was the exact same experience. You were worried. What would people think of me? What if I'm not good enough? What if I fail? What if I don't want to try something new? What if I've never done this before? Am I going to be successful? It's the exact same story. But how about our relationship with Jesus? If you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior yet, if you've never confessed your belief in him, then you might have those same feelings. What do others think about me? Maybe you're at a place where people know you there and they know your past. Well, they hold that against you? Maybe they won't believe that you've actually changed. Maybe you have a fear of not being good enough for Jesus. If that's the case, have no fear at all. He loves you just as you are. What if I believe in Jesus, but I still fall short? I still sin. Will he forgive me? What if I've never been to church before? Will they accept me? What if, what if, what if? We ask that question all the time. How about for believers? Maybe some of those same things. We still have some of those same sphere. What if we're not good enough? What if we fall short? What if God asks me to do something new that I've never done before? Like, oh, say, what if God asks me to help lead, a facilitate a community group? And just to gather together with other believers and study God's word a little bit further, that would be something new. What if God asked me to go on a mission trip? What if God asked me to serve in our student ministry, in our children's ministry. What if God asked me to go to over to Forest Park once a week and read for a half hour to kindergartners? It's way out of my comfort zone. What if He asked me to be a part of the praise band or the praise team because I've been given a gift that our pastor doesn't have of being able to play any instrument whatsoever at all or read any kind of music? Yeah, what if? What if? There's so many what ifs in that mix. Why is it as humans we can easily identify the worst possible case scenario? and always go there first instead of ever thinking about the potential positive outcomes that could happen? I think it's probably because of our fall, the fall of man, and the reality that without Jesus, everything we should fear, quite honestly, because there is no hope apart from him. And so in the instant where you're like, oh, I don't think I could ever do that. I am afraid of trying that. I don't feel like I'm qualified to do that. The answer to all those questions is you're right. You're not. You should be. But you're asking the wrong question. Jesus, what if Jesus helps me lead this group? What if Jesus, will you be successful then? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, the disciples were no different. Jesus spent this huge amount of time with his 12 disciples. He'd been teaching them, pouring into them, loving them, showing them how to do things. And so it came a time in Matthew chapter 10, we said, okay, guys, take everything I've just taught you and go. I'm going to send you out to go do some work. He'd given them a series of instructions, one of which was this, Matthew ten twenty eight. Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both the body and soul. In hell are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them fall to the ground outside of your father's care. And even the very head, hairs of your head are numbered. So don't be afraid, you're worth more than many sparrows. The disciples were scared to death as Jesus sent them out without him. He was staying back home. They were scared. He wanted to encourage them. Don't fear man. Now his approach was kind of interesting. Hey, don't worry about it if they kill you. (laughs) He was probably laughing when he said that to him. You know, like to us, that seems like a really big deal because it is. Life is precious and we know that. But apart from Christ, of course, there's lots to fear. He reminds them, fear the one God who can destroy both the body and soul. In other words, don't be afraid of man and what they can do to you. Be afraid of what you, what happens to you if you don't do what God wants you to do, is what he's encouraging them with and pushing them out the door as kids going to their first day of school. And quite, quite honestly, is what he was doing. Now, fear of God is an entirely different message, probably an entire sermon series at some point in time. But I'll share with you just one passage from King Solomon in Proverbs 9, 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, if you know Solomon's story, it's interesting. God came to Solomon in a dream and said, hey, what do you want? Solomon could have picked anything on planet earth and he chose the, dis- the, the ability to discern between good and evil. Now, technically that is wisdom. How do we know that this form of fear of God isn't a bad thing? Well, it's not the kind of fear that we think of. It's a reverence. It's a respect. It's beyond just being scared of something. But our reality is this. In the Bible, the authors throughout Scripture, the voice of prophets, the angels, even God himself, are always telling people, fear not. Do not fear, for I am with you. So he tries to remove that fear at every possible turn. But in our world, how can this be possible? There is so much to fear. How could anyone walk around without some sort of fear, Existing around them. And the research I was doing, um, Bible study tools, a a site that I I quite often reference, there's some really good material there. You should look. Forty percent of the top ten passages all deal, deal with fear. Their most searched passages, nearly half of them have to do with fear. You think that's an accident or a coincidence? No. The world in which we live intentionally manipulates us. You may not realize this. It intentionally manipulates us. It sensationalizes everything in order to get a, by a, a, an extreme reaction. And you see that playing out in life now. I'll give you a silly example. As a kid growing up, I was a news junkie. I would watch the news every night, even in junior high. I would watch the news every night. I loved watching the news. And I can remember, think about this, when you were a kid and you watched the news and the weatherman came on and said, we're going to have one to three inches of snow tomorrow. What happened? Nothing. No one cared. It mattered not at all. But now, if they came on and said we're going to have three inches of snow tomorrow, this is a winter weather advisory. The stores are all going to be sold out of bread and milk, and even people that are lactose intolerant and, glu- and glucose sensitive will buy the bread and milk because this apocalypse of 2019 is coming. The world is ending as we know it. Someone told me once they think there's actually a deal between the grocery stores and the weather people to raise, but I don't know if that's true. That's a conspiracy theory. I don't really buy into those. I get so many weather alerts on my phone, I truthfully don't even read them anymore. You know, the wind advisory. It's windy. Go fly a kite. um, Frost warnings. Frost warnings. Yes, 32 degrees is going to destroy the world as we know it, everyone. So frost warnings. This happens. It, It comes across the bottom of your screen when you're watching TV. It's ridiculous what they do to us. Because then we look around and we see the real events of the world, the tragedies affecting every age, every socioeconomic level, every geographic area of our country, and even the world. We see natural disasters. We see wars. We even see threats and rumors of wars. Wait, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Yeah, in time's prophecy... Then there's the financial uncertainties that exist, the physical challenges that we all have, the relationship struggles that we deal with. It kind of makes the first day of school seem like the good old days, doesn't it? Yeah, I'd never want to go back either. But anyway, you understand what I'm saying. As a believer, whether young and dealing with the the ideas of going back to school as an adult, wrestling with the world in which we live, how on earth can we possibly make it? Well, I want to start with the end. The passage we're going to close with, 1 John 4:18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Why? Why? Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We have no fear of punishment if we're in Christ. We know we are in his hands. There will be no punishment for us in the end. Now, I intentionally left out the details of that passage. I'll go back to them later. But there's no fear in love. How is that possible? Perfect love? Where on earth do I find a perfect love? Love, that's a great question. So we're gonna look at a man, a man of God, who was crippled by fear. Now, you have to read it into the story just a little bit, but it's there for sure. The man's name was Gideon. He ended up becoming a judge of Israel. Now, when I hear the word judge, I immediately, like most of you, go straight to black robe, old person, maybe old school wig, you know, behind a bench with a gavel, right? Or maybe Judge Judy with her doily, if you're TV news person. But anyway, whatever that looks like, this was not what we're talking about. The book of Judges tells the story of the time period between the apprentice of Moses, his name was Joshua, all the way up till the time of the Israelite kings, beginning with King Saul. The judges were military leaders. They were deliverers of Israel from the hands of some of their oppressors, as well as rulers and chiefs within the country. Now, very, very few of the judges ever ruled over all of Israel. Most of them just ruled in a more local way. Capacity smaller regions of the country. Gideon ended up becoming a military general, a judiciary, yes, a judge, a prophet, whose call from God and triumph over the Midianites are recorded in chapters 6 through 8 of the book of Judges. But here's the thing. He did not run to God seeking this opportunity. God came to him and chose him for this opportunity. So we're going to begin in Judges chapter 6. So, yep, yeah, we're going to the first part of the Bible. Easy to find the book of Judges. It's right at the very beginning. Um, Chapter six, and we're going to tell part of the story of Gideon, not the entire story. Two chapters would be a lot to read, but we're going to cover what happened in the life of Gideon. Beginning in verse 11, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under an oak near Orpha, where, (coughs) sorry, Ophrah. I always, I think Oprah every time I see that word. to you? Every time. Anyway, it's just something I've always done. Orpha is the name, that belonged to Joash, the Abizurite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. What was Gideon actually doing here? He's hiding. He is hiding. He is a man of military age, obviously a respectable-sized person, or else God wouldn't be choosing him to lead a military battle because no one would follow him if that were the case. He is hiding in a winepress, threshing when the an angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, I can't read the tone of Gideon's voice and what he says next. So I don't really know how to interpret this. Is he being polite? I, I don't understand, but there is not an, oh yeah, absolutely, God, that's me. Um, ex- excuse me, Gideon replies, um, but Lord, um, if you're with us, then why has all of this happened? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hands of the Midianites. Do you realize that Gideon has already quit? The battle's already over. He's already lost. This is done. They're defeated. There is no hope. It's over. The battle hasn't even happened yet, but he thinks this is the case. The Lord turned to him and said, go in in the strength you have and save Israel out of the Midianites' hand. Am I not sending you? (laughs) Hold on, God. Wait just a minute here. Let's not get ahead of ourselves, God. I I need to ask another question here. How can I do that? I picture a whining voice here. Me? I'm, I'm Gideon. Do you know who I am? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. My family's worth nothing, he's saying. I am the least in my family. Looks like he's the youngest brother, doesn't it? Not unusual for God to pick the youngest brother, is it? He does that other places. The Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. So Gideon says, well, if now I've found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please don't go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Now, what is Gideon doing to God? Gideon is testing God. Gideon doesn't believe that this is really happening to him. He doesn't even truthfully believe that this is God he's speaking to. So he throws down this challenge. He went inside. He prepared a young goat. He brought it back out under this oak tree. The angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them On this rock, pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread. And the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon all of a sudden now finally realized that this was in fact an angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, alas, the sovereign Lord, I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. You must read fear into this statement because Gideon is now afraid for his life because he's just come into contact with an angel of the Lord. And that's the response everyone has when they meet with an angel of the Lord. How do we know he was scared to death? Because the next person to speak to him is the Lord God himself. Peace. Do not be afraid. You're not going to die. That's an indication that maybe Gideon thought he was going to die. That was the fear that that Gideon had just been struck with. Yet again, he was already scared. He was hiding in a wine press. He was afraid for the life of Israel. There was no chance they were going to defeat the Midianites. It was already over. It was a foregone conclusion. And now he's scared that he's literally going to die in that moment. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord and then called it, the Lord is peace to this day. It stands in Orpha of the Abizrites. That same night, the Lord said to him, take a second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal, and cut down the Asherah pole. So, gee, what was Gideon's family doing? Worshipping false gods. Interesting. Then he built also the altar of the proper kind to the Lord your God on the top of this height, using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down off of the second bowl as an offering. So he did. Got some servants, but he was scared to death of his family and the town's people. So he did it under. The cover of darkness. In the morning, when the people got up in the town, there was Baal's altar demolished and the Asherah pole beside it cut down. The second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar and they asked, who on earth did this? When they carefully investigated, they told it was Gideon, son of Joash. So the townspeople did like any good townspeople. They demanded Joash sin Gideon out so they could kill him. Once again, Getting afraid for his life. The poor guy, I can see why he would be a bit scared of his neighbors. Now, all the Midianites... Verse 33, And Amalekites and the other eastern peoples had joined forces, crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. So you can imagine being sitting at this town, and you can literally see the smoke rising from the camp outside your villages, just waiting for the opposition to come in and attack. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew the trumpet, summoning the Abizarites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet them. Gideon said to God, if you will really save Israel by my hand, as you've promised, look, I'll place a wolf fleece on the threshing floor. If there's only dew on the fleece and the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you've said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose the next morning. He squeezed out the fleece, got a bowl full of water, and the ground was dry. Test number two. God, was this really you? Okay, stay here till I get back. He was there. Test, or test number one. Test number two. Hey, okay, just this fleece thing, just make it wet. If it's wet in the morning, everything else will dry. God, I know it's you. I'm good to go. I'm all in, right? No. Now, then Gideon said, hey, God, about that. Um, don't get mad at me, but I don't trust you. I don't believe you. I don't think you're telling me the truth. So I'm going to give you one more chance to prove that you're really God, because all this other stuff, ah, might've been an accident. Maybe it just accidentally happened. I don't know. What was Gideon? Be honest. He was us. He was us. You'll understand that more fully here in just a moment. This time, let's flip it. Like the fleece dry, the ground wet. Test number three. And that was good enough, right? That had conquered Gideon's fears. God, that definitely was God. He sent out word. God sent 32,000 people to come and help him defeat this army, these soldiers. Gideon was confident now. He tested God. God came through, absolutely, completely proved it was God. And so then God says, okay, Gideon, now that you believe me, finally, chapter seven, verse two, uh, I got a small problem though, Gideon, you got way too many guys, 32,000, that's just way too many, Gideon. Hmm, Gideon put God to the test, right? So God's going, all right, Gideon, I'm going to test you. So just tell everybody, hey, if any of you are scared, (laughs) go ahead home. I'm sure Gideon was really excited about making that announcement in camp. Okay, guys, if anybody's scared to death, then just, just go right ahead home. So he made the announcement. And what happened? 22,000 people leave. <laughs> it went from 32,000. God, with you? Yeah, we could do this. Absolutely. But God explains to him, no, Gideon, here's the thing. If you accomplish this with 32,000 people, then Israel would think, wow, Israel, I, Gideon, defeated the enemy. And God's like, no, you didn't. No, you didn't. It's all me. And I need you to trust me in this two-thirds of his army just left. Gideon's got to be thinking, now we barely have a chance to even survive, let alone win. Now, we don't know the time lapse that takes place between these events. We don't know if Gideon had time to then go back and redraw the battle strategy and figure out how this 10,000 men are going to defeat this mighty army, joined army of these different civilizations. But the reality is, Gideon gets a second test because God comes to him again and says, hey, Gideon, 10,000 men, men—ah, that's just too many. And if you've read the story, you know the very odd test that he sends them all down to the river and he says, okay, everybody get a drink. And depending on whether they drank like a civilized human being or like a dog, they either stayed or got sent home. So 9,700 more men got sent home, leaving Gideon with only 300 men. A hopeless task before him. And yet, God calls Gideon aside and says, Gideon, do you trust me? (laughs) No. Uh. You know that's, you've seen the fear. There's no way. He's like, all right, I got this 300 men. God, let's go. There's no way he was thinking that. So God gave him one more sign and said, okay, Gideon, here you go. And he sends him down into the camp under the cover of darkness of the enemies. And he overhears a man sharing a dream that he had saying that Gideon of the Israelites was going to defeat the Midianites, and that was enough. Because then God also gave him a very specific battle plan. If you do this, then these will be the results. Gideon laid out that fleece for God. Gideon tested God three times, and God said, Okay, I, I can match that. Here's a test, here's a test, here's a test. Do you trust me? And in the end, he did. He gave him very specific instructions. Gideon followed those to a T, and the Israelites had an incredible victory over the enemy. God delivered Gideon from his fear and the Israelites from the hands of their enemies. Now, before you think that Gideon and any of the other judges were these superhuman, amazing, perfect religious followers of God, let me begin by reminding you that what, what did Gideon's family worship? Yeah, Baal, right, exactly. So um, no, definitely not the case. And the book of Judges is very good about pointing out all the flaws of the men and women that God mentions throughout that book. And I think that's on purpose because what God wants us to know, hey, I know your imperfections. And look what, if you trust me, look what I can do through you. He can take our imperfections, our messed up lives, and even our fear and accomplish great things. Author Scott Savage Savage said it this way, many fears are born from a desire to control the outcome rather than trusting in obedience to God. Obedience does not equal control. When Jesus is our leader and we are his followers, his, he is sovereign over the outcome of our obedience. Yet when I realize what could happen if I obeyed God, I often want to determine the outcome before I take a step of obedience. I know many friends who struggle with wanting to know what will happen after their obedience, before they will obey fellow believers, I think the folks at Berea struggle with that exact idea. We want to follow, we want to believe, we want to do what God tells us, but we want to know how it's going to work out in the end first, rather than just trusting God. God, I'll do whatever you want me to do, but just show me that if I choose to do it, then everything's going to happen just perfect, and it's going to work just great. I want to make sure that everything will be okay, Church, I've been through that myself. God, I really want to follow your will. I would love to be a lead pastor somewhere. I think that would be great. But are you sure there? Are you sure this is the place? Are you sure those are the people? Are you sure, God? Because I don't know. I don't know anybody there. I don't know anybody in that community. I don't know. What if? What if? You see how this game works? God, I could probably lead a small group of people. I probably could sit down and study God's word with them, especially because I'm provided the resources. I could probably do that. But what if, what if lots and lots of people don't come? What if people don't like me? What if, what if, what if we can keep asking? Fear in this world is real. Absolutely. Peter tells us that the enemy Satan. The enemy Satan. The enemy is Satan. The enemy is Satan. Not the government, not the media, not fill-in-the-blank politician, not a foreign country, not your neighbor, not your friend, not the person across the room. The enemy, Satan, be alert and a sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers across the world is undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. You are not alone in your fears Believers across the world, but even more importantly, believers across the aisle in this room right now have the exact same trials. The enemy is not each other. The enemy, of course, is Satan. So our next struggle comes with laying down our pride and our inability to could be in control and give that control over to God. It's not an American way of life. Now, usually people quote this passage from 1 Peter and they leave it stand alone. They forget about the most important part, which is right before it. Peter's words used right before it. Give us the key to the resistance, the key to the flee, the key to being alert and paying attention and being protected from this enemy. In verse 6, he says, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he might lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And then he says, be alert. You see how those are related? We must humble ourselves. We've got to give God control of our lives so that he can protect us, that he can take care of our worries. Not only can he handle them, he wants them from us. The first day of school or the rest, the first day of the rest of your life, fear is real, but so is our God and he alone can save us. I told you I'd reread 1 John 4 with adding a little more context to it because this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit and we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them and they in God and so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. And this is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because perfect love has to do with punishment. And the one who fears is not made perfect in love. You see how you can't just take a text out of context? It means so much by itself, but when you read it with everything around it, oh my goodness, It just opens up the doors. One last verse of encouragement as we close. Isaiah 41.10. So do not fear if you're a believer in Christ, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. You'll notice who all of that responsibility falls on. Not me. It's all on God. So I ask, what has fear prevented you from doing in your faith? What is the fear of the unknown, the inability to trust God just like Gideon? What has that fear prevented you from being able to accomplish for Jesus in your walk with him, whether old or young, all of us? I was afraid to go to Bible college, so I didn't out of high school. I was afraid of doing that. Straight up was. I got scared off by our senior pastor, of all people. Um, Yeah, really, true story. So I never even considered it. God has a sense of humor, doesn't he? Yeah. What is it that you've been so afraid of, preventing you right now, paralyzing you? You need to give control over to God too. Father God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the example of Gideon. Um, That poor guy, oh my goodness. He was scared to death at every turn. And yet, Father, you just prove time and time and time and time again your faithfulness to Him as you will, each and every one of us, if we choose to trust you. Father, maybe it's the fear of of the unknown. Father, maybe there's people listening that have never come to a saving knowledge of you yet in life. They're afraid that they don't know enough. They're afraid that they're not good enough. They're afraid of what people might think. And Father, I just pray that today your spirit casts out that fear. Father, I pray. That they're believers listening, that have a fear of really trusting you with their life. They feel the Spirit moving in their life, pushing them into a form of leadership, into a form of teaching, into a form of serving that they've never done before, and they're really uncomfortable with this idea. This fear exists. So Father, let your perfect love for them cast out that fear. If they've got to throw a fleece out for you to prove to them who you are, so be it. But Father, I pray that we can put our fleeces away. And we can just step into your presence and fully trust you with our future. You know it. You are there. And if you're calling us to do something, even if we mess it up, it's going to turn out okay because it's your power, not ours. Father, we love you. We thank you for your presence here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray.